Welcome back to Bullet Points. Matt Corda is a research associate for the Nuclear Information Project at the Federation of American Scientists. Matt's work has been widely published in numerous major newspapers and magazines, including the Washington Post, Forbes, and CBC. Matt is an expert in missile defense, nuclear deterrence and disarmament, and progressive foreign policy. And his publication, Nuclear Notebook with Hans Christensen, is a fantastic resource for nuclear information, which I highly recommend. Thank you so much for being on the show, Matt. Thanks so much for having me. So just to start off with the relatively general question, what is the Federation of American Scientists and how does it affect policy? Yeah, absolutely. So um, the Federation of American Scientists, it was actually, it was founded in 1945 as the Federation of Atomic Scientists um, because it was founded by, you know, many of the same scientists who were central to the Manhattan Project, um, which created, you know, the first nuclear weapons and so, you know, sort of recognizing that their labor had been used to harm people, um, they set up this organization to promote nuclear disarmament and to, you know, work towards a world without nuclear weapons. And so that mission, which was originally just like very nuclear focused, eventually sort of expanded to provide, you know, science-based analysis in general for a wide variety of issues. So. Um, not just nuclear weapons, but also emerging technologies like um, AI, uh, you know, biosecurity and public health. So we've been really active right now in um, working on, you know, coronavirus stuff, um, you know, national security, things like that. And so we do um, policy recommendations at FAS, but something that I think that we're really good at is developing just like very solid science-based analysis so that um, everyone, whether it's, you know, think tanks or advocates or activists, Congress, the public, um, you know, everyone can participate in those debates and offer their own recommendations based off of some of the analysis that we put forward. Thank you. Yeah, that's fascinating. Um, so, you know, one of the work, some of the work you do with FAS is the nuclear notebook. What is the nuclear notebook? Yeah, so the, the nuclear notebook um, is awesome, right? So it's, it's um, the... The idea behind it is um, that it's supposed to be this authoritative, unclassified estimate of global nuclear forces, right? So it shows, you know, which countries have which weapons, um, where they're located, how many they have, you know, what types there are. And this is, you know, it's a project that's been going on for several decades, um, long before I, I started working at FAS and, and has kind of jumped, you know, between some organizations, but now, um, my colleague Hans Christensen and I, we co-authored the Nuclear Notebook together. And um, because we're sort of, you know, some of the only people who really do this work on that kind of scale, it's like relatively safe to say that um, whenever you see something in various media sources, like whether it's, you know, like Washington Post saying like, oh, like China has this many nuclear weapons or like Russia has this many nuclear weapons, that number generally comes from us. Um, which is pretty exciting. And so, you know, because um, all of these nuclear weapons developments are classified, um, making these types of estimates are, you know, it, it's kind of like more of an, an art than a science, to be honest. Like we, we use like a, a whole mixture of methods. Um, you know, we file freedom of information requests with various government agencies. We um, you know, we kind of speak informally to people, we dig through local news and, and social media, um, and we also spend a lot of time um, on Google Earth 
looking at satellite imagery. And if you've never done it before, I would really encourage you and your and your listeners and just like everyone to download Google Earth and like mess around with it because um, you know it's free and it's really easy and intuitive and you can find some really interesting things on there and kind of make discoveries of your own. Um, and so we, you know, we try and produce these estimates for like a whole bunch of reasons, but kind of the, the primary one is like, as I mentioned, to like enrich the, the public debate because um, what tends to happen is like when you don't have, you know, a public watchdog for what all of these various governments are doing with their nuclear weapons, things will just always happen in secret. Right, so during the Cold War, so many of these decisions about what kinds of nuclear weapons to build or, or um, you know, how to deploy them, those were all very secret. Um, and there were only just a few people working on trying to, you know, shed a little bit of light on it. And today, because um, groups like us, like we're, we're kind of watching pretty closely, it's more difficult for nuclear armed states to make decisions about nuclear policy that affect all of us without you know, people actually reporting on it. Um, and so something, you know, that we also try and think is like useful with regards to the notebook is also putting out these kinds of public estimates allows various governments when they're talking about like arms control negotiations, for example, to have like a common language for doing that because they generally are not going to want to reveal information about their own nuclear arsenals to each other and so they can use our numbers to discuss, you know, where they might go next in their arms control negotiations. And so like sometimes this kind of just like happens where um, I think like a few weeks ago, the, someone in the, the Chinese foreign ministry, he specifically used our numbers in a statement that he had to respond to, you know, a claim that was being made by the American arms control envoy, right? So it was like, it kind of allows for this like diplomatic conversation to take place. So that's pretty neat. Wow, that is fascinating. I, I didn't, I had no idea of the extent of the uh, the usage. That's incredible. Um, so moving on, what are some policies now in terms of, you know, feasibility? What are some policies, policies that countries can feasibly implement to reduce the risk of nuclear war? Uh, lots of things. Um, so, um, you know, I let, we can start with the ones that would be the quickest and then move on to the ones that will uh, take several years. But, you know, some, some really, you know, relatively quick things that could happen is that um, countries could reconsider um, their nuclear launch procedures and particularly the concept of what is known as sole authority, which is this idea that, you know, one single individual has the power to launch nuclear weapons. And once they decide to do that, there's basically like no real mechanism for actually stopping them. And so that policy is largely, you know, sort of, sort of a relic of the Cold War when, you know, the United States and the Soviet Union had tens of thousands of warheads just aimed at each other and believed that they needed like instant access to their nuclear weapons in order to maintain deterrence. Um, but today, you know, that's not really the case. Like no country is really willing to risk launching a like a surprise massive attack um, because everyone is, is pretty confident that they have survivable nuclear forces that could retaliate if necessary right? like that's the main reason why um you know some of the more belligerent forces in the united states have not wanted to attack north korea 
right? Because it's like they are not confident that North Korea, that they would be able to get all of North Korea's nuclear weapons, basically. And so, you know, just like the presence of having these like retaliatory second strike forces um, means that you don't really need to have like instant access to your nuclear weapons anymore because like just having that capability is enough to kind of ensure that deterrence still holds. And so like having this sole authority posture kind of unnecessarily like places the entire fate of the world into the hands of like a single person, which I would generally argue is bad, like kind of no matter um, who that individual is. And so, you know, kind of the second thing that countries could do is, is um, also declare what is known as a nuclear no first use posture, where you essentially state that um, you're not going to launch nuclear weapons first in a conflict. And having a posture like that, you know, might go a long way in helping to diffuse tensions in the middle of a crisis because it could signal to other nuclear armed adversaries that, um, that you're not actually planning on making the conflict go nuclear. And so there, you know, there are a few countries like India and China, and they have policies like that already, but others like the United States do not. And kind of the, the reason why the US doesn't have it, and, and you know, part of the problem is that even if a country like the United States just declared a no first use policy, it doesn't really mean anything if other countries don't actually believe it, right? And so you have to signal that you have a really credible no first use policy by getting rid of those weapons that are specifically designed to be first strike weapons, right? You can't have a no first use policy and have like all of these first strike weapons just like sitting around. And so like China has a, has a relatively credible no first use policy because they rely on um, what's called like minimum deterrence where they maintain a relatively small arsenal of like 200 to 300 warheads. And they explicitly say, they're like, these are gonna be used only in retaliation in the event that a conflict goes nuclear. And this is like really different than the US uh, or Russia, which both have like thousands of nuclear warheads that are specifically designed for nuclear war fighting. And this is something that like, you know, um, like even the United States, there was a, a statement that was made like earlier this week where they said like, we have the capability to fight a nuclear war and, and like win, which is like, it's crazy. Like, ever, like people know that that is not a thing that's possible. Um, you know, like Reagan had that line, right? Where it's like, it's impossible to win a nuclear war. So, and yeah, like we, US forces are kind of like postured specifically to be able to do that. So we should really be thinking pretty seriously about whether it makes sense to like keep these weapons around and indefinitely and actually like keep rebuilding them, which is what we're doing, or like just phase them out entirely. Gotcha, yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. So now moving on to maybe things that are a little less easily feasible, what would it take to achieve a total abolition of all nuclear weapons? So, you know, the biggest obstacle that I can really see that's that's standing in the way of um, making real progress on nuclear disarmament is how intricately connected nuclear weapons are with um, kind of big business and, and like corporate influence and you know uh, you know Trump said, said this on Monday right like he came out and kind of made the statement about where he sort of alluded to um, how uh, there are a lot of, you know, there are a lot of military decisions that are driven by 
um, the interests of corporations. And like, he's a huge hypocrite because like he does this too, right? Like he's enables this all the time, but he's actually not, he's not wrong, right? Like looking, when you look at how nuclear policy gets made, um, you can really see that so many decisions um, about, you know, which weapons we choose to develop or, or purchase um, and how we deploy them seems to be often driven just as much, if not more, by corporate interests than, than actually by like national security concerns. And, you know, I'm, it's, <laughs> you can sort of see it like when you, when you Google it, right? Like it's pretty, it's pretty Googleable that um, when it comes to things like nuclear weapons or when it comes to things like, um, you know, oil, you know, fossil fuels, things like that, like corruption is kind of legal, um, right? Like there, you know, there's this great annual report in, that's useful in the nuclear space and it's called Don't Bank on the Bomb. And it shows specifically like which companies are involved in building missiles and nuclear weapons. And if you take that report and then you look up those companies' public lobbying records, um, you can really plainly see how a lot of these companies are, um, you know, kind of purchasing congressional influence in a way. And so in order to make any kind of headway on nuclear weapons reductions or really like any disarmament measures, we have to close those loopholes somehow because there's just too much money involved and uh, kind of disarmament advocates are, are really hitting a wall, right? So a great example of this is um, that, you know, last year, uh, well, I guess the, the context for this is, is right now there's this big question about what to do with the um, ground-based leg of the nuclear triad in the United States. And it's like all of those intercontinental ballistic missiles that are kind of scattered across like Montana and, and Nebraska. And, and um, the Pentagon keeps saying that the current generation of missiles are like about to completely fall apart. And so we need this like whole new generation of missiles and it's gonna cost a hundred billion dollars. Um, you know, meanwhile, there are other kind of high ranking Air Force officials within the Trump administration who have said, the missiles like are actually not falling apart. Like we, you know, we could life extend them instead of building this whole new thing. It will save a lot of money. Um, and life extension is in a way, you know, kind of more desirable because you're not like rebuilding this new system that will last for like the next hundred years. Instead, you're just kind of life extending and, and then thinking about ways to maybe phase them out in the future. And there's there's this big debate that's going about it, like whether or not the missiles are actually like falling apart or whether or not they could be life extended. And so um, there was a, a, a congressman who sponsored an amendment to um, the big defense bill and it called for a study basically on this, right? Like whether or not those missiles could be life extended or, or is the DOD correct, right? We, need, we have to phase them out and, and we, or we have to rebuild the whole thing. And the amendment was like, it was really just to commission a study and it got absolutely destroyed by, um, by this like big, very well-funded team of lobbyists that was employed by um, the, the defense contractor that ended up winning the contract for these new missiles, right? They, they pushed really hard to get this study killed. And so we are left without you know, a, a public debate about whether or not we actually need to spend this money or whether or not we could put that money towards something else. And so it's like, it's just something to think about. It's a, it's a useful example when you think about like, 
what is stopping disarmament? If we can't even get like a study done because like the these companies are just putting like all their efforts into killing the debate, then like it's it's really hard to move forward. So that that's a that's a a big big problem. Wow, that is that's insane. Yeah. That, wow. Anyway, thank you. Um. So now, yeah, you you I yeah. It's funny because you were just mentioning this, but what are some major issues? And and the question was, what are the biggest issues? with how nuclear strategy is considered um, and used both by the US, but also other countries and what can be done to change that? Yeah, so uh, it's a great question. You know, there are some really big trends that I would say kind of demonstrate that we're going in the wrong direction on, on global nuclear policy. Like every country is going in the wrong direction. And, you know, something um, important to note is that every single nuclear armed country is currently in the middle of a big modernization campaign for their own nuclear arsenal. And so some countries are actually increasing the sizes of their nuclear arsenals. Some of them are keeping their arsenals the same size, but they're actually like swapping out older weapons with newer or more effective ones that will stick around until like the end of the 21st century, basically. Um, and so, you know, when we think about it, like the first ever nuclear weapons test, which is the, the Trinity test, that took place um, 75 years ago, and many countries, including the United States, are building new nuclear weapons right now that will last for like another 75 years, right? So this is like, that's, we're going the wrong direction there. Um, something else that's, that's important to note is like, you know, in the past few years, we've seen the decline and just kind of like general <laughs> disinterest in arms control um, just as like a concept. Right. So and, you know, these agreements are so important because, um, you know, they've been around for, for decades to try and uh, reduce nuclear tensions and keep arsenals down. Right. Keep them constrained. And, you know, today it seems like a lot of those agreements are have either just been like violated or um, just like kind of fallen away or they're under a lot of stress. They're being undermined by all sides. Um, and it generally sort of seems like states are more interested in like blaming and shaming their arms control partners than actually trying to, you know, move the ball forward on arms control and really try and like inject some transparency and, and predictability into like a very unpredictable nuclear world. And so there, you know, I don't, like, I don't know if you saw like a few, I think it was a month or two ago, there's this like really awful exchange where the, um, the U.S., arms control envoy tried to like shame Chinese diplomats over Twitter and by like putting out like flags and you know on this table at a meeting that they weren't invited to and then like claiming that they didn't show up it was like this it was just like this really weird exchange on Twitter and it sort of just like it sort of gives you a sense of like how not seriously um a lot of people in in kind of high up in nuclear armed countries are, are taking this, right? Like it's, it's a really serious issue that we are about to enter a world in which like maybe we don't have any more nuclear arms control. Um, and, every, and people are just like tweeting at each other, right? It's like we need, we need administrations that actually take this seriously. Um, and kind of the last thing that I, I would point to that I think is kind of a, a trend in the wrong direction, aside from like the kind of the corporate influence that I mentioned, um, and, and that actually kind of ties into this as well, but it's like, 
it generally sort of seems like states are more comfortable with arms races than they are with um, than they are with pursuing disarmament, um, right? Like most countries really don't seem to consider um, nuclear disarmament to be, you know, a humanitarian imperative or an environmental imperative or even a security imperative. And I, I think it's, I think like, I think it's all those things. Um, but it sort of seems like a lot of these nuclear armed states are thinking about disarmament more as like a chore um, that they're, you know, they signed on to like these commitments like 50 years ago and are just not interested in doing them. And just kind of like anecdotally, like I've never really, I've never, I've personally like never really heard um, of that many diplomats from any of these countries actually make any statements that sounded particularly sincere about disarmament or really about like giving a coherent rationale for why this is like a security, like a security and humanitarian imperative. Like instead they all sort of say things like, oh, we have to do disarmament because um, it's our obligation under the non-proliferation treaty, which like it is, like it is literally a thing that they sign on to, but it's not like, that's not like a reason to do it, right? And like, that's, that's, that's a chore, right? Like you have to do it because you sign on to it. But what I would like to see is states actually like recognizing that unless they're taking steps to pursue disarmament, like we have a less safe world that kind of perpetuates injustice and, and makes us all kind of live under this like threat of nuclear warfare, um, which is bad. So, um, you know, I, I think like that kind of thinking is, is not good. And I think we need policymakers who really understand that disarmament is this, is this imperative um, for a variety of reasons and, and not just a security one, but also because it's like the right thing to do. Yeah, yeah. I mean, thank thank goodness there are those um, those are those agreements at least in place, <laughs> if nothing else. Um, so one of the most fascinating things I found in researching your writings was the connections between climate and nuclear weapons and technology. Could you talk about sort of why they're related and why it's important to consider them together? Yes. Yeah. Oh my God. Um, so it's like it's it's so important, and it's something that is really not talked about. Um, nearly enough because, you know, when you think about nuclear weapons and climate change, like these are arguably the, the two greatest existential threats that we face um, as a species, right? Like, and these two issues are often examined in kind of their own little silos, but in reality, they're actually like really connected, right? So, um, you know, I, I would argue that climate change and, and nuclear weapons have this like symbiotic relationship in that each threat kind of exacerbates the other threat, right? So there's, there's a lot of really great analysis out there that shows that climate change is, it's setting the stage for conflict between nuclear armed states, um, right? Like India, Pakistan is a, is a great example. Um, and also, you know, there's a, there was a recent study that, um, that my colleague Hans Christensen worked on that um, it suggests that even a kind of a regional nuclear war um, and, I, and I think the study actually uses India Pakistan as, a, as an example, but even like, you know, a regional nuclear war would basically doom the entire planet by like cooling it, I think by like somewhere between two and five degrees. Um, and it would cause like mass starvation across the entire globe, right? So like that's, you know, that's, it's, you know, even just a single use of nuclear weapons would, um, could initiate things like that, right? And so, you know, this also, 
is important to understand in the context that even during peacetime, um, you know, decades of uranium mining and like nuclear testing and nuclear waste dumping have already contaminated so many of our planet's ecosystems um, beyond repair and, and usually displacing um, communities, uh, like poor and vulnerable communities, communities of color in the, in the process, right? So like this, this stuff is all really important. It's generally under-examined. Um, something that I've been looking into a little bit recently is also, you know, when we think about what decisions we're taking right now to um, think about like what the next, you know, the next generation of US nuclear posture is looking like, um, a lot of, you know, a lot of the types of weapons that the United States wants to build are not really optimized for climate change, right? Like, so, um, for example, something that I did a little bit of research on is looking at, you know, that the debate I mentioned earlier, which with those new intercontinental ballistic missiles, those are basically all going into like holes in the ground in the middle of a flood plain, right? Like it's all in, in um, like North Dakota, right? Like, like places that get like a ton of snow and rainfall and, you know, in, for example, like I think it was, it was either last year or the year before, but in, in Nebraska, um, there is, that's like where the US Strategic Command Air Base is. It's in Omaha, Nebraska. Um, and that, that base basically is like the hub for all of the United States' nuclear weapons activity. And that base was like underwater for several months um, because it, because of like just, you know, rain, there was like a ton of rain and, and like big snowfall and things like that. The, the, the whole runway was underwater. They had to rebuild like half of the structures. Um, and then there was like mold everywhere. Like it was just, the whole base was like out of commission for, for um, I think like close to a year and it's cost a lot of money to clean up. And then when you think about that, and then also like, you know, not that far away, it's just like 400 holes in the ground with like missiles in them. Um, you know, there are many reports that have come out that have suggested that like soldiers have had to um, kind of sometimes in some cases like take the missiles out of their silos because the silos got flooded, right? Like just things like that, like, you know, these kinds of things are only gonna get worse. And we're working with like last century's nuclear posture, right? If, you know, if we wanna think about like where things are gonna go in the future, like we're, we're not, it doesn't really feel like we're thinking very future forward, if that makes sense. Yeah, thank you. Um, now, um, speaking also for the future, uh, speaking to a younger audience, how do you see nuclear weapons affecting policies and people in the future? And what can people do if they wanna support progressive change? I, I know it's a, it's a term that I've seen you use in nuclear strategy. Yeah, so it's, it's a great question. Um, and, and like you said, like it ties really nicely into your previous one. And I, I think it's important to think about like, what do we actually mean when we think about um, like quote unquote progressive policy solutions? Because um, at this point it's like such a weird, like vague term, like everyone is kind of using it to mean like so many different things. But, but the way that I really like to think about it is it's actually pretty simple, which is that I would, I would kind of argue that a policy is quote unquote progressive when it kind of matches the scale of the problem, right? So for example, um, I think, you know, the Green New Deal is like a progressive response to climate change because it's this like comprehensive policy that tackles not just climate change, like in its own little silo, but it also, you know, thinks about um, how those policies 
interact with our economic system, right? It, it fundamentally tries to restructure that system so that everyone gets taken care of, especially those people who actually work in the fossil fuel industry, right? Like the, the whole point is like everyone gets made whole, right? By, by a Green New Deal policy. And it seeks to kind of address like a big, a big problem holistically instead of kind of incrementally. Um, and, it, and it thinks a lot about root causes of the problem instead of just doing kind of damage control. So, so to me, that's kind, of, that's kind of my model for what like progressive policy means. And so when I think about like, you know, what, how, like how do we translate that to nuclear policy, right? Like what is, what is progressive nuclear policy? And I would, I would, I would argue, like, you know, I've, I've written a little bit about this in, in the bulletin of the atomic scientists um, last year, but you know, I would argue that we can sort of adapt some of the main kind of principles of the Green New Deal into the nuclear policy space, right? So, you know, the, the four kind of big parts of the Green New Deal that, that you can see are um, international cooperation, um, reductions, right? In, in their case, they're talking about um, like actual like fossil fuel reductions, transparency, and justice. And so, you know, when you think about those four things and how they fit into the nuclear world, like they all actually fit really well, right? So um, international cooperation, right? That's kind of um, how we think about arms control and how the United States um, chooses to engage with its various arms control partners and, and other nuclear armed states, right? So it's, you know, when we think about that, it's about like restarting like good faith arms control talks with, with countries, um, you know, working towards kind of a, a sustainable peace regime with, with North Korea, you know, ending this like warmongering with, with Iran. Um, but it also, you know, something that's also important to note is like what the Green New Deal says is that they say, okay, we want the U.S. to be like the international leader on climate action. And they, it specifically notes that like U.S. has you know, incredible technological expertise that can help other countries achieve, you know, Green New Deals of their own. Like we can do that in the nuclear policy space too, right? So, um, you know, just as the United States could become kind of the leading exporter of like renewable energy technology, it can also be the leading exporter of like disarmament expertise, right? We have, um, in the United States, we have incredible, uh, an incredible scientific community um, that is generally, you know, as far as like the national labs go, many folks there are tasked with actually like building and improving weapons. But what if they were instead directed towards solving more, you know, critical disarmament questions about things like dismantling warheads, um, verifying dismantlement, right? Like that's, it's an incredibly difficult problem that's, that's um, people have not really solved yet about how to verify that another country has like dismantled its nuclear weapons. Um, Right? And, then, and then think about like, how do we export that to other nuclear armed states, right? Because then you, you sort of get this idea of like the just transition, which is so important in the Green New Deal, right? You are still like taking care of the workers, right? Which in this case are like sort of the scientists, but just like reorienting their work towards something constructive instead of destructive. And so like, that's kind of the international um, cooperation aspect. And then, and then the other ones kind of like fall into place, right? Like, the reductions is pretty simple, right? We have to like physically reduce the number of weapons that we have. Um, you know, we're spending at this point somewhere between like 70 and $100,000 per minute on, on nuclear forces. Like that's just a truly insane amount of money that can be used to fund so many other things like 
whether like if you're the kind of person that like cares about you know different kinds of things in u.s national security policy if you're like really worried about like cyber or whatever like you could fund that or if you care more about social social welfare policies like you could give a whole lot of free higher education or like free healthcare or like free public transit, things like that for $70,000 a minute. Um, you know, then there's the kind of the third aspect, which is transparency, right? And that's sort of what we already talked about a little bit about needing to close those financial loopholes that are kind of allowing big corporations to influence nuclear policy right now. And then the fourth thing, which is, which is really important, is, is justice, right? So this is this incredibly important line in the Green New Deal that's, that's about, you know, trying to stop um, current harm and oppression that is being enacted on, you know, frontline and vulnerable communities is, is the phrasing that it uses. And, you know, it, it really kind of goes this, like, restorative justice path. And we need this in the nuclear space, too, right? So so much of the US nuclear complex has been built um, in a way that is racist and colonial um, and, and patriarchal. And, you know, we need, um, we need to be able to kind of apply that restorative justice framework to the US nuclear complex as well. And, you know, there's ways to do that, like that we could offer environmental and economic reparations to frontline communities that have been really affected by nuclear detonations and, and testing, um, you know, and, and trying to center those voices whenever possible. And so like, that's, that's kind of how I envision like the Green New Deal for nuclear weapons. It's like this international cooperation, you know, reductions, transparency and justice. And it's all kind of enacted through this like environmentalist humanitarian lens. And so, you know, just to kind of bring it back full circle, like when we think about like, what is a progressive policy? It's something that doesn't just tackle the immediate, you know, like the band-aid solution, which in this case, I guess is like, we do need to like get the arsenals down, which is absolutely true. But also like, we have to think about like, what's really driving, like what's driving that, what obstructions are, like what barriers are currently in our way and like, how do we get those down as well? Yeah, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Totally. It was, it was my pleasure. Um, this has been, this has been great. Fantastic questions. And I love the bullet points is like the best time. It's so good. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you so much. <laughs>